There are few things that make people successful. Taking a step forward to change their lives is one successful trait, but it takes some time to get there. How do you move forward to greet the success that awaits you? Welcome to Next Steps Forward with host Chris Meek. Each week, Chris brings on another guest who has successfully taken the next steps forward. Now, here is Chris Meek. Welcome to this week's edition of Next Steps Forward. I'm your host, Chris Meek. As always, it's great to have you with us again. Our guest today is Kent Siverud, Chancellor of Syracuse University, which as my listeners know, happened to be my alma mater, so I'd be remiss if I didn't say go orange. Chancellor Siverud is the 12th Chancellor and President of Syracuse University. A legal scholar and academician, Chancellor Siverud has earned distinction as a strategic thinker and visionary leader who has put forward a bold strategic plan to position Syracuse University for growth and recognition as a thriving global research university. Chancellor Siverud, welcome to Next Steps Forward. Many thanks, Chris. It's great to be here. Great to see you again, sir. Ken Siverud has a bachelor's degree from Georgetown University's School of Foreign Service and a law degree and master's in economics from the University of Michigan. He counts among his closest mentors, retired U.S. Supreme Court Justice Sandra Day O'Connor, for whom he clerked shortly after she became the first woman named to the Supreme Court bench. Chancellor Siverud is a native of upstate New York. He came to Syracuse from Washington University in St. Louis, where he served as Dean and the Ethan A. H. Shepley Distinguished University Professor at the School of Law. Before that, he served as Dean at Vanderbilt University Law School and as Associate Dean for Academic Affairs and Professor at the University of Michigan Law School. In addition to his higher education leadership, in 2016, Chancellor Sibrood completed six years of service as one of two trustees for the $20 billion Deepwater Horizon Oil Spill Trust. Chancellor, there are a lot of topics I'm looking forward to wading into during our next 50 minutes. I have to start with your Supreme Court experience. What was it like to clerk for the first woman of the Supreme Court and how did that experience shape your career? Well, uh, you know, the Supreme Court was such an impressive and overwhelming place, and there were life and death issues every day. But the important thing was working for Justice O'Connor. And to have a powerful and decent and humane woman as my first boss after higher education was, was transforming. And she's been a, a teacher and a mentor across my whole career. She was a a pioneer. She grew up on a ranch without electricity and graduated at the top of her class, but couldn't get a job as a lawyer. And so I had to be a solo practitioner and then became a trial judge and a state legislator. So she was such a unique person with a pragmatic perspective. And she was a great boss, demanding, but extraordinarily supportive. So it's just been such a learning experience across a career. As I mentioned at the top of the show, as you know, I bleed orange. And going through your, your academic history, I have to ask, how do you cheer? What do you root for when it's Syracuse, Georgetown, or Syracuse, Michigan? Is it your alma mater? Is it your employer? Or you don't have to answer. I've always rooted for Syracuse, including when I was growing up and including when I was a student at Georgetown. So I, I remember my roots. Very diplomatic. I expect nothing less. Thank you. you know, and, and there are several pretty famous Syracuse alum but there's a Syracuse Law School graduate who turns out might be the most famous so far. And for our listeners, he just took up residence at 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue. What does Joe Biden's election say about Syracuse University and what does it mean for its future? You know, we're so proud to have an SU grad in the White House. And uh, uh, I have to say, I, I think our students have uh, 
a degree of grit and grace that propels them in all fields, often farther than people from perceived more elite places. And uh, I think that uh, it's a it's a great achievement. I think most people who are orange, regardless of their politics, are proud that someone from Syracuse is in the White House. Yeah, no question. So let's talk about the future of higher education. It's been said that higher education is always evolving, but the COVID-19 pandemic has changed everything, including the course of higher education. And we could probably spend a day talking about the future of higher education. There are a few issues in particular that I'd like to cover, and please feel free to add any that you'd like. You know, clearly the first things to fall by the wayside at many universities last year was in-person classes and face-to-face interaction. Before we get to the negative effects, from your perspective, what are the positives of on- online learning? Um, well, so I've taught every semester for the last 30 years at least, and I've taught online uh, courses back to 2013. And I, I just say there's now a general awareness among not just a small group of people who have been teaching online, but the general population of teachers and, and students that there are different learning styles and, and people learn differently. And there's some aspects of each platform of instruction that reach people better. And that's true of online learning too. And that's partly because of the freedom that it gives in time and space, the ability to play things back at your own speed. So I think people have learned that there's important aspects of in-person that are hard to replicate, but there's also important benefits from an online platform done well. And what have universities learned about online learning on that plus side of the ledger during the pandemic that we might not have fully appreciated that you could potentially carry forward, you know, a year from now, five, maybe 10 years? Well, we had to, we learned a lot. I mean, we had to flip in just two weeks, 5,000 courses and sections to, to online from in person. And we learned we had a resilience and an ability of our people to do that beyond, I think, what people's expectations are. And then this fall, we offered almost all our courses, both in person and online at the same time. And we learned that freeing our students from time and place restrictions really opened up some possibilities for the future. Like, you know, an engineering student studying in Florence now has access to the engineering curriculum from Florence, Italy for their semester. And same for our, our alumni, same for our active duty military students. And, and that kind of made us realize we have to make all of Syracuse available to everybody everywhere at all times. And that's a good lesson to have. And that loss of human interaction is one of the biggest negatives, if not the biggest negative, you know, to affect students. We've seen the past few weeks that a doubling of student suicides in the Clark County School District, which is the fifth largest district in the country, has driven the district to reopen for in-person learning. Why do you feel that that interaction is so important for young people in terms of learning, personal development, and mental health? And there may be different answers for all of those. Well, I think we learned that, uh, that a, an in-person interaction component is important to everybody all the time. That isolation is a challenge, as it has been across the country and the world. Uh, student mental health concerns were a major factor in our decision here to remain open for in-person instruction in the fall semester and in the current semester. And that has been important to do with lots of services, uh, but, uh, and it's not always been possible for everybody everywhere, but to maximize that opportunity and do it as best you can safely has been a priority for us. How do you help 
young people recover from what is coming up on one year of isolation? Boy, uh, that's, uh, that requires being thoughtful about this unique situation and not assuming that we're just going to flick a switch and everything's going to go back to the way it was. And just to be really concrete, Chris, you know, our students have not had intramural athletics for more than a year uh, and uh, or will not have had them for more than a year when, when they start up again. And the assumption that everybody instantly remembers and has exercised all the muscles of all student activities and programs and can just start instantly the way they did is probably underestimating the anxiety and mental health issues that go with that. So we're going to have to provide a lot of support and a lot of encouragement uh, in every area from religious activities to, to health activities, to sports uh, and to in the classroom. I think a big portion of that is conveying optimism that we can do this and optimism about the future. I think there's a lot of students who are so chomping at the bit for things, but I think there's also students that will need a degree of support and encouragement because of how long this has gone on. Yeah. You know, I've, I've said in other shows that I'm expecting a, I'm calling a tsunami in the mental health space, you know, once this world reopens, whatever that looks like. And I think the big thing for folks to remember, whether it be faculty, parents, students, it's okay to not be okay. You know, we've all gone through hell for lack of a better word over the last almost year now. Um, and so we're all going through it together and we'll get through it together. And so knowing that there are programs and support that, that places like Syracuse University are offering, I think it's going to be major in terms of helping us get over that hump. Yeah, I mean, you, you think we, we have a whole society that's in some ways going to go through a post-traumatic stress relief. And, and just realizing from our own research here at Syracuse in in post-traumatic stress for, for military personnel, that it's not, it's not a linear path that just gets turned off through one, one seminar for three hours and then wham, everything's fine. It, it, it requires collectively to realize this is going to take a while. And to that point, we've seen lawsuits, even a push for class action suits among parents of college students arguing their kids aren't getting the same quality of education that they're paying for when students are on campus. They cite the loss, not just of the in-person classroom experience, but as you mentioned before, the extracurricular activities, studying abroad. Do they have a point or is the value of a higher education degree still the same? Yeah, obviously the experience of the pandemic is very dramatically based on what university you're at. So I couldn't speak for everywhere or every lawsuit. I'll just say at Syracuse, we've done our best to provide a quality experience, including in-person instruction throughout when permitted by public health authorities. And we've had to really move heaven and earth and spend a lot of money to do that, including not just on PP, personal protective equipment and testing, but on doing everything differently, including, uh, you know, converting huge spaces so that we can do them safely and permit everything from the marching band to the choirs to continue. And that's cost a lot of money. And our students have been able to progress towards their degrees uh, in, in almost all disciplines. So I think we've done our best to deliver what we promised. Well, I mentioned the study abroad program, which is a, a big part of what Syracuse University offers its students. Last year, Syracuse had a number of students studying abroad when the pandemic started to shut down international travel. How did you get all those students home? Yeah, it was more than a thousand students on multiple continents. Uh, and all I'll say is that we moved fast. We, we, we got students home early wherever possible before there was medical advice to do so because of our 
own public health advice here in Syracuse about the course of the pandemic. And so we had a large staff working in our study abroad centers and from here in Syracuse to do what it took and spend what it took to get people on flights and get them back. And we got everybody back. Your decisions don't just affect the university campus. Syracuse University is the largest employer in the community. How does that influence the financial, tactical, and strategic decisions that you have to make day in, day out? And how did the pandemic play to the university's place in the community? Um, well, we're the largest private employer in the region. And uh, what we do and how we treat our employees and staff has an incredible multiplier effect on families and the community because of, of how dependent uh, this community is on the thousands and thousands of students, faculty, and staff who work here. So uh, that meant it was a high priority to figure out a way to keep the university going forward with as few layoffs and furloughs as possible and as few consequences to benefits that so many of our employees and their dependents depend on. And that, that, that was a challenge uh, uh, financially and in every other way, but but that's how we proceeded. So we've had relatively few layoffs and furloughs, less than in a normal year. Uh, and we haven't had any cut in benefits or retirement contributions or other things. And we've had to provide services to our staff and our employees that respond to the stress they're going on privately in their individual family. So we now provide testing, not just for our employees, but for their family members. Uh, so that they can get a quick turnaround. And we worked very hard to help the school system transition to online education in the city. Um, and that's basically what a good private employer should do for its community. I guess the silver lining and the dark cloud of crisis, they often, often give us opportunities to improve. How can universities get better as a result of the pandemic? You know, Every, every aspect of the university has been tested by it and learned from it. I, I guess I'd just say the most important lesson is that uh, we came together as a university to face things. And we came together across faculty, staff, and students, and alumni in, in so many ways, including getting our students jobs, including figuring out how to, how to keep operating. And, and we faced a lot of tough criticism and complaints along the way from members of the community. And I think we learned that listening to those and responding to them made us have a better response instead of regarding, uh, regarding any criticism or complaints as a problem. It was an opportunity to learn how we could do better. So if we can keep coming together like that around the challenges that will come at us after the pandemic, and there's lots of them, I think we're going to do pretty well. And from a corporate relationship perspective, are closer connections and partnerships with specific companies, you know, great for the university? Is there an opportunity there or the private sector in general? Uh, yeah, uh, we, we've, we've learned that close partnerships uh, with private sector entities help a lot, in, including in our research, in our educational efforts, in our education to, efforts to reach populations, and in our veterans and military activities for veteran and military families. And so I think those are going to grow and become more important. And knowing the number of universities we have in the country and given what's happened during the pandemic in terms of not being able to get in person, what they're doing for online or in-person classes, will some universities and colleges not survive the pandemic? Um, yes, absolutely. Uh, some are already 
uh, closing. Um, and many, many more are in trouble, uh, serious financial trouble because of the pandemic accelerating trends that were already going on in higher education and enrollment and in other areas. So I do think there's going to be a lot of disruption uh, uh, in the private, in the particularly private higher education space. The publics are struggling as well, but it's the privates that either make their budgets or go under. We've been talking to Syracuse University Chancellor Kent Siverud, and we'll be right back after a short break. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. What's the difference between leaders who achieve exceptional results with ease and those who struggle to keep up? Tune in for Leading on Purpose with Nicole Bendeley. You'll discover the simple practices that are making the biggest difference to a leader's success today. You'll meet leaders who are bringing out the best in their teams. You'll gain practical strategies to lead yourself and others to high performance with ease. Leading on Purpose airs live Mondays at 3 p.m. Eastern Time, noon Pacific, on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. If you are ready to be inspired, energized, and entertained, you've come to the right place with our two life-changing programs at BeTheStarYouAreRadio.com. Live every Wednesday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time, 7 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. Listen for our lifestyle show, Star Style, Be The Star You Are, with our host, Cynthia Bryan. Then on Sundays at 3 p.m. Pacific, 6 p.m. Eastern, Teens Talk and the World Listens on Express Yourself Teen Radio. Play with with us at be the star you are radio.com and the voice america empowerment channel you have the power to be stronger live fearlessly and enjoy the benefits of a great life listen for fearlessly authentic with host jody harrison bauer jody has proven at an age when many start to slow down that she is just getting started With two grown daughters, a successful business that she started at 50, a finalist in the Sports Illustrated swimsuit issue, and a two-time world bikini champion, she's ready to take you to the next level in your life. Fearlessly Authentic airs Thursdays at 3 p.m. Eastern, noon Pacific, on Voice America Empowerment. Are you looking for life's answers? How about the meaning of true self? Can you really be a better person overnight? Well, good luck with that. Now, if you really want to know more about this insane world and life we lead, tune into Dr. Gary Bell's Absurd Psychology. You'll learn about how the brain operates under different psychological conditions. Some common sense. Heck, you might just actually learn something. Listen Tuesdays at 11 a.m. Pacific, 2 p.m. Eastern on Voice America Empowerment. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. You are listening to Next Steps Forward. To reach Chris Meek or his guest on the show today, please call in to 1-888-346-9141. That's 1-888-346-9141. Or send an email to chris at nextstepsforward.com. Now, back to this week's show. 
We're back with Syracuse University Chancellor and President, Ken Siverud. Chancellor, you've identified four top priorities at Syracuse, providing an outstanding undergraduate experience, empowering research excellence, fostering and supporting change and innovation, and positioning Syracuse as the best university in the world for veterans. I wanna go through each of those individually, but why the focus on veterans? Uh, we're, we're focused on veterans and military families here because really two reasons. First of all, it's the right thing to do. And second of all, we can do it better than anyone. And I guess I'd unpack that a little bit for you. First of all, in terms of the right thing to do, um, we have a long history with veterans and military families here that, uh, of being one of the, certainly the private universities that's been most supportive and accommodating. Uh, we believe here it's the right thing to do because we're in an era where with an all-volunteer military and with less than 1% of our families providing uh, the people who volunteer for service, uh, there is a moral obligation on all institutions and all citizens to be supportive of the burdens that that poses for those families and for those who serve. And and as a university, and universities have been pretty awful about, uh, about their treatment of veterans and their enrollment of veterans, particularly the more elite privates, where the veteran enrollment has been so pathetically small. And so we feel it's the right thing to do to uh, accept that responsibility better than our peers and to provide the educational services that really can transform a veteran's life, a person's life as they come out of active duty military service, supporting their families, supporting their certification, their transition to careers, and supporting all the issues that come with, with that abrupt transition. And so it's the right thing to do. We've got hundreds of people here at Syracuse uh, in our Institute of Veterans and Military Family and in our Office of Veteran and Military Affairs who work full time on that, do the best research in the world on that, and we, we think that we can model what our own research shows we should be doing. And so our veteran enrollment is among the largest of any private university and certainly among the largest by percentage terms. And, and, and we think that improves our university for all our students and all our community. But we also think we can do it well and model and teach others how to do it well. So that's the reason for it. It's kind of our mission. You've continued to teach at Syracuse each semester as a member of the College of Law and the School of Education faculties. Chancellor, clearly you have enough on your agenda that you could forego the classroom. Why is it so important for you to continue to teach? Uh, I love teaching and I need to do some things that refresh me in challenging days. Uh, I love teaching, particularly at Syracuse, because we have the best students here. They have a degree, just a grit and grace and, and, and focus that rivals any place. And it kind of reminds me why we're doing what we're doing and helps me remind others of that. So I do it because I love doing it because education is our mission. And it's so I, I you know, it, I've, you find the time for what, what's most important. Oh, exactly. I love that motto. And the other three pillars, how do you go about providing an outstanding undergraduate experience? And can it really be much different from other premier universities and colleges especially during this era of COVID-19? You know, COVID is a unique era, so it's hard, to, it's, hard to, it's hard to compare because 
everybody's doing so many different things across the country and some of them are closed completely and some of them are open completely and everything in between. But uh, I guess I'd say that I think we can be different COVID and post-COVID. I think given our student body, given our, that we're a high quality private with power five sports of which there are very few. And given we have this extraordinary spirit and, and programs around the world and campuses around the world, I think we can deliver something that's available almost nowhere else and that we should just shamelessly do so and, and talk about it. Resources are always finite, even at the best universities like Syracuse. How do you empower research excellence while also achieving other priorities? You know, uh, research is, is key to education for our students and for our mission of impacting the world. Uh, it, it, it consumes a lot of money, so you have to make careful choices where to invest your research dollars. And often those choices are not best centrally planned from, from the chancellor or president, but are best by hiring good people and empowering them to find where the opportunities are. Uh, so, you know, it's, 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 it's a complicated endeavor. It requires good government relations because they're the main funder of research, but it also requires a lot of venture capital type attitudes and entrepreneurship and seed funding. Uh, and that's what we've been doing increasingly here. And that's been borne out. Some of the most exciting developments of research in Syracuse have been both due to calculated investment over a long period of time. That was the investment in gravitational waves research, which confirmed the existence of black holes, which was partly an effort from Syracuse. But it's also come often from just giving $1,000 to a student to pursue a project with a faculty member and them taking it in unexpected directions. And finally, fostering supporting change and innovation. What do Syracuse and universities in its class need to change? And where does racial equality fit into that discussion? Well, I think supporting change, uh, racial equality is front and center, and particularly right now, but has been for a long time. Uh, there's a pretty proud history on, on confronting uh, diversity and inclusion and racial equality issues at Syracuse University. We face serious challenges and bumps along the way, but at our best, we face them pretty honestly and openly. And so I think that's what we need now. I think we, we are facing uh, anti-Black racism very directly in a comprehensive set of ways right now, but we're also facing what the next generation of issues for indigenous peoples. We have a very proud history with the Haudenosaunee and the Onondaga nation here. We're also facing a new wave uh, in the country of anti-Semitism and need to face that. And we're also facing a new set of opportunities with respect to peoples with disabilities, which has always been a strong point of what we've done here in our research and our service. So I think the role of universities in change and innovation is to face directly these things and look at them with a clear eye and, and do the best we can from new knowledge and new fields. So one thing I didn't know about among all your other hats that you wear is that you also serve as the chair of the Atlantic Coast Conference Board of Directors. And honestly, Chancellor, given all you do, I don't know how you do it all. Uh, and you also serve on several other higher education boards. Many football conferences abandoned their 2020 season, but the ACC was notable in its commitment to getting athletes on the field last year, even if it was for a shortened season. As a result of that, the ACC became a North Star for some other conferences. What was the driving motivation behind the decision to play? 
Yeah, it's been a it's been a long two years uh, leading that board, and and I guess I just say that the ACC is a conference with many sports, uh, and it was a challenging decision, particularly in the summer, as the Big Ten and the Pac-12 canceled much of their seasons to decide to go forward. And we were able to do that by getting all 15 presidents together to listen to careful medical advice and to then make, uh, I guess, Chris, I'd say the two key decisions, we agreed that uh, each school would respect the decisions of the other schools, whether to play or not, and whether to cancel uh, uh, an individual event or a, a season and that we would support those decisions regardless of whether we had made the same ones. And we also made the decision to reinforce that, that we were going to share all revenues equally among the 15 schools, including Notre Dame, uh, which took away much of the financial pressure on decision makers as to what the safe thing to do was for an individual competition. Now, each school has done behave differently because they each face different circumstances, but we've held together as a conference and were able to have more competitions in the fall safely than almost all, I believe, other conferences. And that's, that's bound us together as a conference in a good way going forward, including in selecting a wonderful new commissioner and Jim Phillips, who is the athletic director at Northwestern. It's still a very challenging time uh, because of the the virus right now and events in particular competitions are being scheduled every uh, and canceled and rescheduled every day. So we're going to have to pick our way across this minefield the rest of the year as well. But I think the conference has done its best to do a fair balancing of public health concerns and the desire of the vast majority of our students to compete and the, the other tough decision we made, but I'm very proud of, is we made sure that there would be uh, no consequences in support for any student athlete who decided not to compete, including years of eligibility, including making sure there was no pressure on them from within or without to play against their wishes. Before the show, you mentioned how Syracuse's upcoming game, uh, basketball game with Louisville was canceled due to COVID uh, on the Louisville team. I know every school is different but how does Syracuse University test and protect uh, the student-athletes? Uh, we've been, we've been uh, aggressive in our testing from the beginning, uh, testing multiple times a week. Um, uh, uh, we've even been willing to halt an event, or we, we, one football game didn't start a few minutes before kickoff because of an ambiguity of a test result. And with the networks and, and the fans and everybody else waiting, we said, we're, we're, not, we're, we're ready to cancel this game, even though everybody's on the field and ready to go if we're not certain. And so we delayed that game for a half an hour while we rechecked and redoubled the testing result. So uh, the testing knowledge has gotten better and the testing quality and testing opportunities have gotten better. In the early portions of the season, it was, it was scary because of supply problems and because the scientific knowledge of what test and when was evolving so fast. But uh, I think it's evolved well now, and we're, we're continuing on the methodology that we followed in the past. We have a great medical advisory group in the ACC, and they've given us protocols that we've been able to apply, not just to uh, school, ACC schools, but to any school that's in a competition with an ACC school. 
you mentioned a moment ago the students, student athletes eligibility. The NCAA is allowing this year's seniors to play another season if they want to. You know, obviously that's great for them, but it has created a squeeze for incoming first-year students across the country, many of whom have actually seen their scholarship offers withdrawn. What do you feel the long-term effect on students and athletic programs as a result of the pandemic, and does it signal what we need to restructure collegiate athletics, athletics and the way that we view them? Boy, there's a lot in that question, Chris. Uh, and I guess maybe the best way to come at it is to say that um, college sports is going through a transformational year, and it's not just the pandemic. It's extraordinary change coming at us from everything from state legislatures to Congress to the Supreme Court, which has a ma- major amateur athletics decision being argued this this spring, uh, but also uh, change coming to us because of, of uh, uh, issues concerning how we're going to come out of the pandemic with uh, essentially a bottleneck of student-athletes because of this extra year or more of eligibility. Uh, I am not a sports expert, so I haven't worked it all out yet. I just think it's going to take people being open-minded and not mechanically applying uh, the rules and practices that they got used to over a very stable 30-year period. So it's going to take being aware of and listening to the unique situations of rising high school seniors as well as as well as college seniors who maybe didn't get to compete in their sport in the past year. And it's going to take being aware that um, the there's going to be a period of at least another year where flexibility and tolerance is called for rather than bureaucratic, uh, um, monomaniacal uh, assumption that we've always done it this way, so we're going to keep doing it this way. Yeah, and to that point, if anything else, I guess we're being forced to, to rewrite the, the playbook here because uh, as you said earlier, it's day by day and, and we're learning on the fly as we go. And so uh, that flexibility, that understanding is going to be key you know, to, to keep that, lack of a better you know, pun, keep that ball moving forward. So let's switch gears for a minute. I noticed that you serve on the Boy Scouts of America Longhouse Council. We know that volunteering is good for our sense of self and our well-being. What do you personally get from volunteering? Uh, I think volunteering has to be part of a well-balanced life. And, and what I get from volunteering is a sense that of awareness of everything I've been able to do and everything I have is really a gift from people who sacrificed themselves for me when I was young and growing and learning and that there's an obligation to pay it back. And it's easiest to pay it back where your own passion is. And for me, um, the Boy Scouts were pretty important to, to me in a very challenging time in my life. And so at its best, I think the Boy Scouts can do the same thing for kids who, who need that support and that set of activities who won't get it elsewhere. And so I get satisfaction from that, both at feeling like I'm paying it back and, 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 and making a difference. So what advice do you have for listeners who may say, I'm too busy to volunteer, or I wouldn't know where or how to get started. You seem to find the time given all it's on your calendar. What advice would you have? Yeah, well, if, if you wait for somebody to ask, sometimes you can wait for a long time. Uh, uh, and often when you're asked, it's, um, 
it's it's at an inconvenient time and not exactly how you'd want to do it. So I think it requires proactivity to look deeply into your soul. What part of your life was most impacted by by um, people who didn't have to do things helping you out? And what does that tell you where you should be acting as well? Obviously, you want, you want to act where you can make an impact given your own skill set. But I'd say you got to be a little proactive because... Not everybody out there is thinking, how can I get you to volunteer? So they're busy enough without thinking about how to take care of your volunteering life. You've probably got to take charge of it yourself. (laughs) Well, I think a lot of times, too, people shy away from volunteering to serve on boards because they know that they're going to have to call on people for money. Fundraising is something that university presidents, like or not, have to devote time and energy to doing. What tips and secrets would you share with listeners if they're afraid of that aspect of volunteering? Uh, the, the aspect of, of asking for money, you mean? So, yes. Yeah, yes. I mean, you know, I, I will just emphasize that much of my most satisfied, satisfying volunteering has not been the board-level service. It's been on the ground. I used to staff a homeless shelter, and, and the, the individual impact is very satisfying. At some point, uh, you get asked to be help in governance, and and that does involve asking others to get engaged and to give support. I guess I'd say my main lesson from that is you have to believe in your mission, and you have to ask. So even if you're not somebody who likes to ask for help for yourself, uh, you just have to get over it and get out the words, I need you to do this uh, to others. And if you believe in your mission, that's relatively easy to do. Your wife, Dr. Ruth Chen, is an environmental toxicologist and professor of practice in the College of Engineering and Computer Science. What have you learned from her over the years? And did you have some interesting dinner conversations during your time as one of the trustees for the Deepwater Horizon Oil Spill Trust? Well, we've been married almost 40 years, so uh, I'm going to get in trouble uh, if, I, if I get the wrong things and what I've learned for her. So it's, I've learned a terrific amount. We raised three kids. Uh, and and uh, moved four times and uh, uh, gone through a lot together. So I've learned uh, a lot about a marriage always being a work in progress and not being a result and requiring investment and work at all times. As a toxicologist, and she, she was the toxicologist for the State Department of Health in Tennessee in a very challenging time, as well as been a professor of environmental engineering, I guess uh, she has been at the dinner table and in all settings, usually about 10 years ahead because of a deep absorption in science of what environmental problems are coming our way in terms of public consciousness. So toxic chemicals and where toxic chemicals are and where we should be concerned, she's always been 10 years ahead. She, she got me early on worried about saran wrap in contact, direct contact with food at room temperature, for example, uh, (laughs) which I still see occasionally and makes me scared. Uh, uh, She uh, was 10 years ahead in terms of climate change and that it was coming and that was going to be a big deal, a much bigger deal than people appreciated back in the 80s and 90s. Certainly 10 years ahead and current health hazards that I think are underappreciated, like sugar and diet. Uh, and and viruses and viruses and viruses. So I think she's the biggest impact she's had on me is to actually listen to the science 
and not believe it's going to go away and pay attention to it early on and read read the science and the cutting-edge science research before it becomes popularized in the mainstream media. Because by doing that, um, whatever family or institution you're responsible for, you might be able to pivot ahead of, ahead of time in ways that are really important. And that's, that's what she's done for my family and for the employers she's worked with. Before the show, you and I were using the word optimis- optimistic and talking about the optimism that we have. You know, we talk about the fragile mental health state of, of the world. It's very important that things are not all doom and gloom, that we need to have optimism about our own well-being, our communities, and certainly our country right now, given some of the things we've gone through the last few months. Could you share some reasons and maybe more importantly, some ways about how why we can be optimistic about the path forward? Sure. Well, so I'm very optimistic for the United States, which is my country, and I'm very patriotic about the United States. And I, and part of the reason I'm optimistic is because I'm, I'm a voracious reader of history, military history, social history, political history. And the notion that, that what we're going through now is the most serious, awful, challenging thing that any American has ever faced can only be said by somebody who hasn't read American history or hasn't talked to their grandparents. Um, so, so, you know, I had grandparents who lost their farm in the Dust Bowl you know, I great grandparents in sod huts on the prairie. They went through a lot, right? And and each generation has had extraordinary challenges in American history. And we've also had extraordinary political polarization in our history. And it didn't always lead to a civil war, right? So I think we've gone through public health and other challenges as a country and handled them better over time than any place. And, and along the way, welcomed new people and newcomers and incorporated into them to the best of what our country is. So I'm just optimistic that historically that fiber of who Americans are is still there and will rise. Uh, I've seen that in my own university and how it's responded to the pandemic and to protests and to polarization. And I think our role as a university is to seize on what we do, which is education, and help the, the fundamental decency that is the United States come out. Uh, and so I'm optimistic we're going to do that at this university. We're going to do it for all our communities. Uh, and we have the most diverse communities of any university I've ever been at. And that we're going to bring those communities together to try and do that. And I think there's a lot of people who feel that way and positions like mine, who sure have got discouraged by what has been a challenging time in our country, but hopefully are starting to set aside individual interests or individual ideologies to come together to do that. So my message of optimism is that the people I see in this country and the people I work with, the vast majority are fundamentally decent people who care about each other and care about each other across all divisions, and that if inspired enough by challenges that we face, they come together to deal with them. And I think we're starting to see that with the pandemic and with these other issues. And I think we'll see it going forward as America has done in the past. Like you, I'm very optimistic. And that may be my Maxwell School education. So I have to give a plug for the school there as well. Um, but also hopeful that now that the election is over, the inauguration is over, 
that we can move forward and, you know, really become the United States of America again, and not just have that be a name. So uh, I appreciate that insight and completely agree with everything you said. So Chancellor, we have just a few minutes left. Now, I've marveled at everything you do during the course of a day, a week, a month, serving as chancellor and president, to teaching in the classroom, to chairing the ACC board of directors, to your time in the Boy Scouts. Obviously, time management is a very important component of, of a successful life. As the saying goes, if we don't control time, time controls us. What advice do you have for listeners about being an effective time manager? Well, you know, it took me a long time to learn. So uh, like lots of things we talked about, I wish I fully understood them better when I was young. Okay. But I'd say the first thing is that I am more effective and I get more work done when I work 12 hours a day than when I work 18 hours a day. And by that, I mean, it, in any particular day working 18 hours, I might get more done, but over time I become uh, less productive and, and less, uh, less quality of a decision maker by, by trying to do that. So the first obvious thing is that you got to know when to stop. Okay. And, and for me, 12 hours is, is maximum. The other time management thing I'd just say, I guess that's a question, mostly time management lessons for our listeners, um, is that uh, I, um, I do better if I have a list at the beginning of the day and there's some little things on the list that are moving the ball forward in each aspect of my life that matters. You know, so a, a short family list, a short personal list, a short work-related list. And, and, and so I try and start the day with, with figuring out how, if a minute free, I can at least contact a cousin, right? So I can say I did something for family that day, or I can pay a bill. I, if I try and save everything for big, big, big gobs, then the task seems overwhelming. So early in my life, I used to save all my bills and finances to take care of every month. And then, then it was overwhelming. So breaking it down into lists and doing a little bit in multiple areas has worked better for me, but it took me 40 years to figure out. Always a work in progress, like you said, right? Amen. Ken Severud, Chancellor of Syracuse University, thanks so much for being with us today. Thanks for having me, Chris, and best wishes to you and to everybody out there. Thank you. And thank you to our audience for tuning in to Next Steps Forward. I'm Chris Meek. For more details about upcoming shows and guests, please follow me on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash Chris Meek Public Figure. We'll be back next Tuesday, same time, same place, with another leader from the world of business, politics, sports, or entertainment. Until then, stay safe and keep taking your next steps forward. Thanks for tuning in to Next Steps Forward. Be sure to join Chris Meek for another great show next Tuesday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time and 1 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. This week, make things happen in your life.